Father, as we begin, would you please grant us to grasp the privilege that it is to have your word in our hands. There are many who have come before us who have not had the Bible in their hands. Centuries of people who could only look at the scriptures in, in pieces here and there and only in certain places. And you have granted us, Lord, to have all of your inspired word in bound copies in our hands and now in electronic form in our pockets. Lord, help us to remember the privilege that we have to hold your word, to read it. Please remind us, Father, that it is your very word. Every word is inspired. And please help us to keep in mind that because you are a sovereign God who ordains everything that happens, as we have arrived here this morning, the text in front of us is the exact text that you would have us to consider. And so what we will encounter this morning is timely. We thank you that we can always trust that that is the case. We pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to us by helping us to understand what we read here and by helping us to apply it rightly, by helping us not only to exegete the text, but exegete our own hearts, pull our hearts apart and see where it is that we need this word. Pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would help us to love these things and to eagerly live in light of them. We ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. To begin, we're going to read a, a lengthier portion of Scripture. We're going to cover a smaller chunk of that larger portion. I, I want to read the, the, the bigger chunk for the sake of context. So if, as, you're, as you're finding your place there, if you would stand with me, we're going to read from Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13 through verse 34. So 13 through 34. Mark chapter 12, beginning of verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by opinions, but truly teach the, the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God the things that are God's, and they marveled at him. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, 
Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring to his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher, for you have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, No one dared ask him any more questions. You may be seated. Here we find a passage filled with questions. There are a lot of famous questions in the Bible. In fact, following some of the famous questions in the Bible, if you just hear these questions, you can almost trace the storyline, the grand storyline of the Bible. Why don't we try this? I'm just going to quote some of the the questions from the Bible and see if you can't follow the story. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Am I my brother's keeper? Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Who is Yahweh that I should obey His voice and let Israel go? Who will give us meat for it was better for us in Egypt? Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? And also, can you do good who are accustomed to do evil? O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? against which you have been angry these 70 years. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboiim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Who then is this? 
that even the wind and sea obey Him. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do you seek the living among the dead? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? With each of these questions, these prominent questions in the Scriptures and their answers, the Holy Spirit moves along this great story of redemption and with each of these questions and their answers, the Holy Spirit implicitly questions us, what will you do with this story? What will you do with these truths? The passage that we've just read is carried along by questions posed to Jesus. And the the text implicitly questions us. We've just seen these three groups come to Jesus to question the Lord. Now, two of those groups desire to gather evidence against Him by which they might accuse Him and have Him killed. Of course, they're not going to get what they're looking for. They won't get that evidence. They're going to kill Him anyway. But after throwing their best at Him, Jesus goes away unscathed. They go away indicted. One thing that this section shows is that Jesus is going to go to the cross completely free of any charge against him. He's going to go to the charge unblemished, go to the cross unblemished. Rather, what they seek to prove wrong in Jesus is actually wrong in them. We'll find that very clearly. That's the first two sections of the of the the passage that we just read from verse 13 to verse 27. The third question which comes from that scribe in in verse 28 through 34, it shows a positive encounter in which Jesus commends that inquiring scribe as being not far from the kingdom. These interactions provide a contrast on a couple of different levels. There's a contrast between the first two scenes, those trying to trip Jesus up, and the third scene, the scribe truly seeking Jesus' wisdom. That's one level of contrast. There's also another level of contrast between Jesus and His kingdom and those who reject Him. And the whole section of the three interactions is intended to move the reader or the listener to reject rejection and instead follow in Jesus' footsteps. So all of these encounters really go together. And with each encounter, Jesus is being asked a question And with each encounter, we are being asked a question. And this first encounter, which we will focus on this morning, shows Jesus being asked, should we pay these taxes to Caesar or should we not? And the conclusion of the text shows Jesus calling all men to render to God what belongs to God. Doing so is a mark of kingdom living living that, that 
differentiates rejectors from followers. And it prompts us to consider this question, have I given God what is due Him? So most of this text shows this first thing, that Jesus gives to God what is due Him. Jesus gives to God what is due Him. So let's back up and and begin again in verse 13. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, who is the they? They sent to him some of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I mean, I'm sorry, Herodians. Who is they? They is the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees from the previous passage. Turn with me, if you would, briefly back to chapter 8 and verse 31. 8.31 will jog our memories a bit. In 8.31, we find the first of three predictions that Jesus made about what was going to happen to Him in Jerusalem. Mark 8.31 reads this way, And He, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And those are the three groups of people that he interacted with late in chapter 11 and coming into chapter 12. The Son of Man must suffer these things. He must be rejected by these three groups of Jewish leaders. He must be killed and after three days he must rise again. He must. He must in two senses. First of all, it must happen because this is God's plan. According to Acts chapter 4, all that is going to take place in Jerusalem, Jesus' rejection by the the Jewish leaders, His arrest, His suffering, His crucifixion, His resurrection, everything that's going to be done to Jesus by the hand of sinful men, God has predestined to occur. It must happen. Second, it must happen in the sense that it is the only way for sinners to be saved. And God made a promise. Back in Genesis chapter 3, that He was going to save sinners. It must happen. It's the only way. The elders, the chief priests and scribes mentioned in in Mark 8, 31, and with whom Jesus interacted in, in late chapter 11 and early chapter 12, they are going to be the means by which God will accomplish His plan. Now, As we saw in that previous passage, chapters 11 and 12, They failed in their encounter with Jesus. They failed to to catch Him in His words, so now they send others. They send the the Pharisees and Herodians here. The Sadducees are going to come in in this second encounter that we'll look at in uh, future weeks, Lord willing. A a decent way to classify these, these other groups, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees, is to say that they were something akin to theological slash political parties within Judaism. Now, there would have been some overlap between the chief priests, scribes, and elders on the one hand and the Pharisees, Herodians, and Sadducees on the other because within those offices, the, the chief priests, the elders, and the, the, um, yeah, the chief priests, the elders, and the... Let me see here, sorry. Chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they were... They were offices. The, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and Sadducees, those are like political parties within those groups. So there's some overlap there. But these religious leaders, those, those in office, they were basically saying to others within their midst, hey, you guys now go try and get him. 
What they need is something with which to charge Jesus. And Mark, Mark has told us three times in these last, this last chapter and a half that they are afraid of the crowd, these religious leaders, because of how the crowd regards Jesus. They need something with which to charge Him. They can't just kill Him because it'll set off a riot. It's almost funny when you think about them, think about this. Jesus trapped them in their words at the end of chapter 11 when He asked the question, is the baptism of John from heaven or from man? That, that was a lose, lose, lose question. And you may remember that they chose lose. And they were embarrassed. And now they're thinking, well, he, he trapped us in our words. Two can play that game. So we'll send some of our buddies to go and trap him in, in his words. Well, we're about to find out that only one can play that game. Only Jesus can play that game. Look at verse 14. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? That is the big question moving the narrative in, in this encounter. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or not. And initially you might think, wow, that is tricky. That is tricky because if Jesus says it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, that is tantamount to being a traitor to Israel. The Jews hate this tax because their foreign oppressors, the Romans, are occupying the Jews' land and essentially charging the Jews rent. I mean, imagine if somebody did that in your house. Somebody comes and lives in your house that you own, and they're going to charge you rent. You think, yeah, that's not the way this works. You would be a bit resentful, probably. Well, that's how the Jews feel. So if Jesus says, yeah, pay those taxes, uh, he's not going to be too popular, probably, with the Jews. So if he says that, the Jewish leaders win. But if he says it isn't lawful to pay taxes to Caesar... Well, that would make Jesus an insurrectionist. And then they could go and accuse Jesus before Pilate. So they, they may have been giggling under their breath. You know, we've got him now. Consider, though, before we think about how Jesus answers this question, consider how they've tried to butter him up because what they've said here is significant. Look again at verse 14. We know that you're true. That, that's another way of saying you're honest and you do not care about anyone's opinion. For, and that little word for signals that they're about to give the reason why he doesn't care about anyone's opinion. For, you're not swayed by appearances. And that, that little, that the literally means you do not look at the faces of men. That's just a biblical expression. It goes all the way back to, to Genesis. It just means you're not partial to men, but you, tr you truly teach the way of God. You don't look at the faces of men, but you truly teach the way of God. In other words, you're honest. You're not swayed by others' opinions, but you're out to please God, not men. And that's what they're saying about him, to butter him up, to try to get him to engage with them. What they've said is ironic for three reasons. First of all, their question assumes that Jesus is not these things. 
by approaching and thinking that this question is going to tie Jesus up in knots, they assume that Jesus is highly motivated by what other people think, and therefore he's going to squirm under the pressure to please everyone. So they're assuming that he's not this. A second reason that this is ironic is that though they don't think Jesus is these things, he actually is. Which is precisely why not only is he going to answer, but it's why he's going to answer in the particular way that he does. He doesn't care about other people's opinions. He is not a man pleaser. He is a God pleaser. A third reason that this is ironic is that these characteristics are the opposite of the Jewish leaders themselves. They are not honest. Jesus is going to confirm that here in a minute here in verse 15. They couldn't possibly care more about the opinions of men. Underneath all of that is this overwhelming fear of man and zero fear of God. They've wanted to kill Jesus for a while now, so bad they can taste it. Why don't they do it? Well, Mark has told us three times again in the last chapter and a half that they can't. Why? Not because they fear God, but because they fear man. Mark told us that in in 11.18, 11.32, and 12.12. So their question to Jesus assumes that He is what they actually are, lying man-pleasers. Verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, He said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Knowing their hypocrisy. We've, we've talked about this before, I know, but just as a, as a reminder, in, in Bible days, hypocrites, the, the, a literal hypocrite was an actor who wore a mask on a stage. So they, they, they wore a mask to pretend that they were someone that they were not. And there's nothing inherently wrong with, with acting, but that, that picture of an actor wearing a mask on a stage became a metaphor of being two-faced in real life. And that phrase, knowing their hypocrisy, indicates that everything that they just said about Jesus was not genuine. They don't believe what they just said about Him and their question is not a genuine question. They're not coming for knowledge, but rather they're coming to trap Him. So He says, why put me to the test? He knows that this is a test. He knows it's a trap. With that, we're shown that they are the dishonest ones. By continuing to answer the question, Jesus proves that He is what they said He is. He is honest. He is not a man-pleaser. He is out to please God. Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. That's the first signal that He has not been trapped. He's not intimidated. He's going to answer the question. He's about to boldly speak truth with unparalleled wisdom, bringing the focus back onto the hearts of those questioning Him. For Jesus, for Jesus, the, the, his, his management of this exchange isn't about getting out of a tight spot, and it isn't about turning the tables on these men. Rather, for Jesus, it's about fulfilling the plan of God calling people's attention to the dire state of their own souls and then being killed for it. Jesus is fearless. In, in all of this, Jesus' whole handling of, of, this, 
of this situation is, is just another way of saying that Jesus gives to God all that is due Him. Jesus obeys the Father, not man. He seeks to please the Father, not man. He truly teaches the way of God, not swayed one bit by how unpalatable it may be to those around Him, even though He knows that He's going to be killed by these people. I would dare say that all of us have at least a touch of fear of man in us. At least a touch. Some of us may be eaten up by it. Now, we may not be familiar with that phrase, so what is the fear of man? Fear of man basically is what we're seeing in these Jewish leaders. It's the opposite of what they've just ascribed to Jesus. The fear of man is caring deeply about others' opinion of us and not so much about God's. It is being ultimately motivated by what other people are going to think. Seeking to please man rather than to please God. Now, if you have a fear of man problem and you want to see what it would look like to live perfectly in the fear of God, utterly unencumbered by the fear of man, I commend to you the life of Jesus of Nazareth. What an amazing man this is. Read the four Gospels. Read them slowly, looking at how he interacts with people. What does he do when he's in a tight spot and others are thinking poorly of him? What does he do when others place expectations upon him? What does he do when he's asked difficult questions? Is he driven by social pressure? What motivates him in an ultimate sense? He seeks to please the Father always and only. Now that does not mean that he cares nothing for man. Because even as he seeks to please the Father, never has there been a more compassionate human being to his fellow man. But his motivation is to please the Father, not man. Now here is something to be thankful for. Jesus not only provides us a perfect example, but he provides us the power to walk in that example. Now that's not a major point of this passage. A a contrast is being provided. Those outside of Christ are simply not like Him. Those who follow Him will be. Sometimes we may feel completely inadequate to walk as He walked. And inherently we are inadequate. But as we look to His example, let's not forget that the Spirit that empowered Christ to live in this way, the, the, the way that He lived as exemplified here in the Gospels, that Spirit is ours because... Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave. That that very Spirit that empowered Him to do these things lives inside of us, and so we can walk as He walked. So those who have a fear of man problem, look to Jesus. He has no fear of man. He gives to God what is due Him. That brings us to a second truth. All men should give to God what is due Him. All men should give to God what is due Him. Look at verse 16. 
They've posed a question to Jesus. Jesus asked them for a denarius. Now he asks them a question. Verse 16, they brought one. He said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Now, some commentators have found significance in the fact that Jesus asked them for a denarius, implying he, he didn't have one, but they did. And also, on that Roman denarius, one side would have been stamped with a face of Caesar, the other side with the image of a pagan god. And so those commentators say that these, these Pharisees and Herodians were then carrying around a graven image in the form of this coin and essentially breaking the, the second of the Ten Commandments. Now, all of that could be, but that doesn't seem to be what Jesus is getting at here. That doesn't seem to make the best sense of everything that Jesus says in this encounter. Caesar's image is on the coin, and Jesus wants to elicit that from them, so that is significant. But what does Jesus assume about that coin because Caesar's image is on it? Look at the first part of verse 17. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The coin bears Caesar's image and inscription. Jesus assumes then that because the coin bears Caesar's image, it belongs to him. Now, the dilemma is dissolved at that point. You know, they thought they had him trapped. It's gone. It it has absolutely vanished. The coin belongs to Caesar. Give it to him. How how do you argue with that? On the basis of just that, everything is gone. Now, he's using that. We we, we might say the whole whole question has been answered at that point, right? We could could say that Jesus, Jesus has a mic drop moment there and can just walk away. Because they, they don't have him and he can just go eat lunch or whatever. But what is Jesus' mission from the Father? Jesus' mission is to call people to repent and to come back to God. And so that's what he's about to do. He's about to use what he's just said to point to the condition of these these men's soul, and to call them to repent. Look at verse 17 again. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. On the basis of Caesar's image, marking his ownership of that coin, Jesus then says, and to God the things that are God's. Well, what belongs to God by virtue of bearing His image. The word image here in this text is the same word found in the Greek version of the Old Testament of Genesis 1.26 that Pastor Dan read for us at the beginning this morning. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Man is the image of God. God reigning through him, and therefore, man belongs to God. If you read the creation narrative of Genesis 1, you just read straight through that thing. The structure of the text, recounting the sixth day compared to the first five days, bears marks indicating that something very significant happens on the sixth day. It's the creation of man. Man is the only one of God's creatures created in God's image. 
Male and female, He created them in His image. A unique relationship was created there, one in which man as male and female would serve God through dominion over His creation. They were under His authority. And He gave them a command there in those first verses. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Be fruitful and multiply and have dominion those two things, that is what it is, is to exist in the likeness of God. We're doing what He does, creating and exercising dominion. And In the second chapter, you move into the second chapter of Genesis, we find that God gives another a command. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So, so man is to exercise dominion over the earth, under the dominion of God. So God is the ultimate authority. God gives the commands. Man exercises dominion over the earth under the authority of the Father by virtue of His bearing God's image. Man owes God Himself. And with the very first question of the Bible, with the very first question of the Bible, did God really say the man and the woman begin to crave personal autonomy. Personal autonomy. It's so highly prized in this world, especially in our culture. Personal autonomy, which says, no one sets my course but me. I'm the captain of this ship. Nobody owns me. I own me. Anything less is, is bondage. That is a lie. It's the original lie. A question. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now here's a lie. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That is the lie that personal autonomy is to be desired. Personal autonomy brings life. You'll not surely die. That is a direct contradiction to what God said. God said, you will surely die. The serpent said, you will not die. He directly contradicts God. You won't die. You'll be like God. You'll be autonomous. There, there is some really good and helpful scholarly literature that has looked at every use of that phrase, good and evil, in the Hebrew Scriptures. And it has been analyzed, that use of that concept, and it's been found that to know good and evil in the sense used here in Genesis 3 is to determine for yourself autonomously, that is, independent of God, what is right and wrong. To determine for yourself autonomously what is right and wrong. The serpent is advertising personal autonomy. You'll be able to judge for yourself what you can do and what you can't do. That's a lie. 
Right and wrong is a reflection of the immutable character of God. You and I can't determine for ourselves what is right and wrong. And when we try, the Scriptures demonstrate, when we try, it leads to misery and suffering. And this is why we hear that terrible refrain in the suffering of the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Those chapters in the book of Judges are perhaps the darkest in the Bible. Suffering and evil is where personal autonomy lead. The image of God in us, His stamp of ownership, is more than just His stamp of ownership. It speaks to our design. We weren't designed to flourish in personal autonomy. We can't function properly outside of a relationship with Him. But because of this rebellion, our saying to God, we don't don't want to be in a relationship with you. We want personal autonomy. Because of that rebellion, we can't have a relationship with Him. Adam and Eve were removed from the garden because sin separates. And so, therefore, everyone who come after them, we all have been separated from God by our sin. And our sin has then doomed us to live in misery. Worse, in death, we are judged and doomed to eternal wrath. Bleak picture. What's the solution? Jesus, the only only man who, who ever perfectly imaged the Father. Colossians 1.15 says that He is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1, I'm sorry, Hebrews 1.3 says He is the radiance of the, the, the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. Now, in Christ's divinity, He images God in a way that we never will. However, in His humanity, Christ is the image of God in a way that we were always intended to. Perfectly serving God the Father as His representative on earth. He is the perfect man. And He came to redeem lost men. Those who bear the image of God. Those who belong to God but who refuse to live like it. Christ, the perfect image of God, the eternal Son, came to live righteously in the place of sinful man. To die on the cross in the stead of sinful man. And to be raised from the dead that He might give life to sinful man. And in doing so, in doing that, Jesus calls all men to give to God what belongs to God, to repent and to trust in Christ, to reconcile them to the Father that they might walk in fellowship with Him eternally. This is the fundamental issue of humanity. By sinning in the garden, man took what rightfully rightfully belongs to God, which is man. And this call to repentance that Jesus has been preaching, He's been preaching it, we, we've seen it from, from Mark 1.14 on, He's been preaching that on the heels of John the Baptist and Malachi and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Moses. All of that has simply been a call to render to God what belongs to God. There's an interesting subtlety in the, the Greek text of Mark 12. When the Pharisees approach, the Pharisees and, and the The Herodians approach Jesus and they ask their question. They use a particular Greek word in verse 14. The best way to render it would be, should we give or not give? And the word itself implies that what is given is not owed. It's like a voluntary. Should should we give or, or, or not give? 
When Jesus answers the question, He uses a different word. And that word means to pay back or to give what is owed. Give give what is owed to Caesar because it belongs to Him. It is His. Give what is owed to God because it belongs to God. It's a subtle but significant difference in the words. When when we recognize our rebellion against God and and the gracious provision that He has made in Christ and, and trust in Him, repenting of our sin, we're not doing something voluntary and we're not doing Him a favor. We're not doing something we're not obligated to do. We're surrendering what is owed in the ultimate sense. We bear His image. We belong to God. It is incumbent upon us to render to Him us. We have no right to us. I have no right not to give Him me. By virtue of my very existence, I owe Him my life and all that I am, by virtue of your very existence. You owe Him your life and everything that you are. Render to God what belongs to God, and that is you and everything that you are and have. Questions. There's questions all over the Bible. In this section, questions trying to test Jesus. These questions end up only justifying the Lord Jesus And they end up condemning those who reject, implicitly posing questions to us, the first of which is, have I rendered to God what belongs to Him? Now, those who have followed Christ may immediately appeal to their following Christ and say, yes, I have rendered to God what belongs to Him. I would ask you to consider this. Is there something in your redeemed life that the Holy Spirit might point to and say, what about that? That thing in your life that you're holding back for whatever reason, perhaps fear of man. Is there something like that? Something that belongs to God that you have not rendered to God? Rather than speculating or guessing, why don't we just ask Him? In a few minutes after I pray, we're going, to, we're going to spend a few minutes in silent reflection. And Why don't we just ask the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit of God, have I given the Father all that belongs to Him? Would you please show me? Let's ask Him that question. Let's pray. Father, you are a magnificent and kind Father. We confess gladly before you that all praise, all glory belongs to you. We confess to you that we belong to you in a way that the rest of the creation doesn't, in that you have stamped us with your very image. We thank you, Father, for the great privilege of of being your image bearers. We pray that you would, you would grant us a, a glorious 
sense of the weight of the responsibility that comes with bearing your image, that we would bear it joyfully, and that we would own a sense of stewardship of that image, knowing that you own us, all that we are, all that we have, that we would not desire autonomy from you in any sense, Lord. And in these coming moments, Father, we pray that your Spirit would speak to us each. You might show us where there may be remnants of our lives that we are withholding what rightfully belongs to you. We pray also, Lord, for those who may not know you at all, who, who have not turned from their sin, who are still living in absolute personal autonomy, denying you their own souls, which rightfully are yours. We, we pray for them that they, would, that they would get a sense of the doom that awaits them upon death that you would be gracious to them, helping them to see the weight of their sin and how it condemns them. Would you help them to see the beauty of Christ and the fullness of the provision that you've made through Jesus to save them from their sin and that they might find it the greatest, the greatest of joys, the greatest of privileges to render unto you what belongs to you, which is their lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name.